the startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is the Pain of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. Hello, I'm Paul. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, our Pain of Scale Series 5. And today, communication, 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 but not for the sake of communication, but for the sake of clarity, leadership, you know, a true voice, a true vision. We all thrive for it during these times of the pandemic. So I would say I've been very much looking forward to this one. So Stephen, to you and our guest, please introduce us. As you said, communication is critical. In startups, in any organizations, especially as an organization grows, you know, ensuring everyone across the business is aligned with the company's vision, the values, the behaviors, what matters most, how are they going to succeed? The importance, I think, of, of communication has heightened in 2020. We've all gone through this extraordinary crisis and moved to an offline world. And I think the interesting thing, Paul, is now that actually we're in this on-off world it's even more important, yeah. you know, not just what you say, but how you say and, and the tools that, that you use. And Ren, I think, Ren Vara, who's our guest today, is probably the best guide for this. I, I think of him as the, the Lionel Lowe to King George V. I think that's the way you used that line, didn't you, Ren, a few <laughs> years ago at our, at our retreat? I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, that yes, I did. <laughs> you know, he, he helps founders find their voice. And we were just talking about an interesting conversation you had a few years ago with Hiroki, one of our founders, in terms of helping him to really find what's important to him and his unique voice for Go Cardless. And this is what Ren does. He just lives his life helping leaders build the leadership skills they need to lead some of the world's leading tech brands like, wow, Google, Facebook, Airbnb, too many to mention. Um, He specializes in building teams and trust within those teams and clear communication across, you know, rapidly growing dispersed companies. And he's been doing that for 25 years plus, would you say, Ren? Yeah, I'm sad to say this, but we're getting close to 30. (laughs) Wow. I'll change my notes. Kind of embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Ren, welcome. Thank you. It's always a joy speaking to you and and everybody on your team. and, And we've gained so much value from working with you over the last few years. But let's kind of jump into this topic. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, Ren, what are you hearing from founders in these crazy days? You could see the inverted commas there. Yeah, this has been one of those really interesting moments because on one end, on the positive end of this, this is a moment where great founders actually really excel. You know, founders love moments like this, frankly, the really extreme ones. I think of Brian Chesky, actually. When this all happened, think about the Airbnb business. And they're on the edge of going public, right? The perception at the moment from everyone was that it was over. Like, this is going to destroy Airbnb, right? People would think that Brian would be all depressed. He wasn't. It was the opposite. He was elated. He was giddy at the opportunity to prove the world wrong. This is fundamental to many founders. They love challenging moments, right? So on one end, you have those kind of founders. On the other end, you have other founders that this was tough and it still is, you know, going through the transition. If you're in Europe, a lot of the European governments have helped a lot, but it's been covering the spectrum on that front. The bottom line at this moment is it's a creative moment for founders. And that's a positive thing. The negative is it made some have to really pivot quick and they've had to really make changes. They've had to, you know, let people go, which is the worst thing in the world for a founder to do. They don't like that. They're going in the wrong direction when that happens, right? So it's a spectrum. But what I, I love about this moment is that it appeals to kind of the base instincts of why I love founders. They love challenging moments. And this is 
you know, has there been a bigger one for any of us than this one? No. Paul and I had the privilege of interviewing 10 of our founders over the March, April, May timeframe about how they were responding to the crisis. And, and that came through loud and clear. And every single one of them went through that emotional roller coaster that you know people do when they were telling their story at the end of it. And he said, we're going to come out of this stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to come yeah. out of this better. Yeah. And that is a fundamental characteristic. For the last five years, as you know, I've been working in Europe. That exact thing is what I'm finding with the vast majority of the founders I work with in Europe. It's been really impressive to watch. They said that up at the very beginning. And as we've gone through these months, they've actually made it so. It's been quite impressive, actually. We're very lucky to work with people like that, aren't we? So what's different now then in terms of the kind of communication challenge versus pre-COVID? I think the number one thing is to realize this. If you're a founder or if you're a senior person in any company, whether you like it or not, you have now become a full-time communicator. Communication is everything right now. It's not just one thing you do. It's everything. And the founders that get that, that understand this idea of engaging with their team constantly, you know, not overdoing Zoom because you can drive people frigging crazy, but the idea of realizing you have to touch them on multiple levels and that this moment is personal. It's this idea that we're living our work. That's a very different thing than maybe what we did before. Before I could live in my house, have my home, then I would go to work. That was work. And it might cross over, but it wasn't 100%. Right now it's 100%. So because of that, you've got to really overly communicate. You've got to be phenomenally empathetic and you have to go personal. And this is hard for some business people to understand, but you've got to get personal because people are living their work. It's a very different way of thinking. So communication is everything. Is there a kind of a, I mean, I I know all founders are different and, and everyone's circumstances are different, but is there a kind of a winning formula you're seeing kind of emerging for that? You know, I'm not. You know, one of the questions we get asked is, you know, who's doing this well? The answer is nobody. People are getting parts of it right. But this thing is so new. It is so different that we can't get it right just yet because we don't quite know the scale of it. You know, when this first happened, I would tell many of the founders I talked to, I said, look, something really weird is happening globally. And it's going to have implications that we're just not quite sure of yet. And what it is, is this. You've asked the world, particularly a certain you know, class of people, you know, people that are working in, you know, tech or whatever. And we are blessed to be where we are in this world that we live in. Those people are being told, go home, ponder your navel, go home, think about your life, go home and spend time with your kids and your wife and your spouse, your partners, your, you know, all that, right? Which means that people are reassessing their lives. They're actually going through a self-analysis right now that is very odd. This has not happened on a global scale like it's happened. So we don't know the implications of this yet. We're seeing some of it, like engineers saying, I'm not going back to an office. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to live anywhere I want to on the earth, right? What does that really mean? How do you build a business that way? When we know, those of us who've been in business a long time know that most great work happens in the hallways. It happens in that breakout room. It happens in those casual moments when we run to get a cup of coffee together. How do we run businesses without that? It's, it's a really interesting moment. So the short answer is we don't really know yet. We're in the middle of it. And so what I encourage everybody to do is experiment. Just try stuff. Just try things and see what works. My gut tells me that we're not going to find a real model that works, but we're going to find elements of a model that work. And then we're going to have to be terribly creative on knowing when to flex what, when. You've got to really embrace this idea that communications now is everything. 
And if you understand that, then you've got to really tinker. So no, I, I'm not seeing a model per se that I would say is the winning formula. I would guess as well that probably the first month going of this pandemic and of this working from home, remote first, whatever you want to call it, not that it's easier to manage because we were learning from it, but you were working with the same team. So suddenly when you need to start, because this is lasting, you need to start onboarding new people. That model gets even more muddled because you lack these no moments of water cooler moments, et cetera, to pervade the culture, for instance, of your company. That's right, Paul. A lot of our people are hiring people they've never met before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's, that's what's actually <laughs> happening right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing it in my own company. I've been hiring people I have not seen in person. Yeah, That is stunning. The implications of that, we just don't know what that really means, but it's going to be interesting, you know? So experiment. And you're going to make some huge mistakes right now. It's okay. You know, forgive yourself, forgive others, seek understanding, you know? This is Aristotle, you know, embrace Aristotle in a very big way. This concept of we are going to walk the earth non-judgmentally, we're going to walk the earth seeking understanding. We're going to have to listen like crazy and really pay attention because we don't know what works yet. I love it. I love it because I've seen far too many people trying to say that we nailed the model or we're close to nail it. And I also believe that we're all learning. We're kids, teenagers probably is the better definition in learning how to deal with all this. I think kids yeah. is right. And I think if you accept the fact that we just don't know, but you communicate with kind of real honesty and in a purely personal way, and you, and you say you're prepared to tinker and try and experiment, then there's hope. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Let's take a bit of a step back. You know, you live your life working with founders all over the world. And what is it you love about working <laughs> with founders? Well, first of all, what's there not to love? You know, you're with a group of people that are incredibly creative. They think very differently than normal business people. They're willing to break rules you know, which is so great. They're willing to say, maybe that, let's try something else. You know, they have that kind of thing. And, and they often ask when somebody walks into a room and says, well, this is the way to do it. This is what works or that won't work. They're the ones generally say, well, why not? Why wouldn't that work? Let's try it. Watch this. You know, they, they experiment. So there's something really wonderful about that creativity. So my wife and I, we realized this a few years ago that we have spent our entire adult life working primarily with 20 and 30 year olds. But that's just been our, our life. You know, think about the early days of Google. They were all in their 20s. And we spent that moment, you know, at that beginning with all the way at the Airbnb, where it's just a bunch of guys who are in their 20s. We have had the joy of living with these creators. You know, what's not to love? It's a brilliant group of humans that are really looking at the earth in a very different way than maybe those of us of are of a certain, you know, a certain vintage, maybe loses our ability to do that. It goes back to the issue of being a child. It just reminded me of another amazing story. And I can't remember the, the name of the character that Peter Sellers plays in being there when he was alongside all of these incredible moments, because that's, you've had Peter, that's that. my favorite movie on earth, man. Whenever people what? ask me, being there is my favorite What's movie. What's the character's name? Chauncey Gardner. Chauncey Gardner. That's right. Beautiful film. And maybe you could just give that little kind of analogy. because I do think it's really interesting. Well, you know, I'm an American and most Americans live in movies, right? It's, it's one of our downfalls, actually. It's why you, why you see the political problems that we have. We see ourselves as heroes in our own films, right? So I have three films that really guide me. One of them is being there. And I'm so happy you brought that up with Chauncey Gardner. And here's a man who lived, grew up until he was in his 50s, only watching television and then was unleashed on the world. And so he had to function. He ends up getting elected president of the United States. 
interesting, isn't it? When you think of what we're currently <laughs> dealing with. And then the King's Speech. I'll never forget, we went to go watch King's Speech with my daughter. And in the middle of the movie, she turns to me, Dad, that's you. Just like that. And I, I, I just, I go, what are you talking about? She goes, Dad, that relationship, the way you work, you know, that you're behind the scenes, nobody knows you exist. You know, that you, you do what you do, which I thought was really interesting. I find that King's Speech, that's my best self, right? The being there is where you find that I am, I'm a fool. Like I'm, I really don't know what I'm talking about, right? So I'm reminded in being there that I'm just an idiot and that people think I know what I'm talking about. So they're going to elect me president. But the truth is, I know me. I'm not that bright, right? So King's Speech is really great. And then I see myself truly as Forrest Gump. I believe I've had the privilege of walking a path. You think about my first job, I worked on Capitol Hill in the 80s, in which I met President Reagan. I spent a lot of time with Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House. I was there, but I have no idea what I saw. I just know I was there. And then I've lived the entire tech thing. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm Forrest Gump. I just had the privilege of being in rooms, but I rarely understood truly what was going on until probably now, right? So I look at those three films and I go, that defines me. Those three films define who I am. When you think about it, that might be how it defines all of us. We're all idiots, right? We have our best moments, you know, King's speech. And then we just kind of walk through life, not reflecting on our experiences until later. We find out later, wait a minute, I was in that room. I heard that conversation, right? Those three films mean a lot to me. One of the things that we've spoken about on a number of occasions is about using that King's speech analogy, helping founders find their voice. What does that mean to you? You can't do this overtly. You got to do this very authentically. And the first thing is you got to really help them clarify their values, you know, find their best selves. And you do that through conversation about, you know, how they grew up, their parents, you know, what were the big moments. And I do that very casually. Like they don't even know we're doing that, frankly. And if I can wrap it around something in business, I do. So the first thing is just help them see themselves. Just really, who are you really? You know, cut the bullshit. Who are you really? Then the second thing is I put them in context. You know, let's see you in your company. Let's see you in the world. Let's see how others respond to you. When does your best self show up and when does your worst self show up? So for some founders, particularly in the West Coast of the U.S., you know, back in the day, you had a big bro culture. And so these young men just didn't really realize how they were being perceived. Their bravado, you know, I'm going to change the world and all that stuff. You know, think of yourself in context or help them see themselves in context. What works, what doesn't? When do you sound like a buffoon? And when do you actually see that other people's eyes light up when they really do hear you? So this idea of being heard and then hearing, like making sure that you're really listening well, but that you're also figuring out how to be heard. And then the third thing is how to sculpture your language, sculpt it, this conversation, so that as Aristotle says, you know, how do we help you speak your truth with clarity and passion? So if I can capture those three things, I can get a founder there. If I can just get them to really see themselves, see themselves in context, how they impact, and then find that sculpted voice, we can get there. That sense of speaking your truth with clarity and passion and really sculpting that content is very, very evocative. I wonder how how does that translate into creating a business where every employee is aligned and engaged? And, and maybe we'll come back to the third part of that question, which was going to be, and well, because I think that's something that we should probably talk about as a kind of separate question. Yeah, they're related. And let me tell you how they're related. This idea of sculpting, speaking with your truth with clarity. The truth is, you know, people ask me what I do all day long. I do this all day long. 
I literally, I rewrite emails all day. I help them with, you know, stupid things they do in Slack. If I get good founders where they talk to me right before they have a tough conversation, we sculpt the conversation. And then by actively working together on sculpting the conversation, they learn the art because it is an art. This is not something you're just going to have a little, you know, 10 steps and you get it. It's a practiced art. It's like with me, I play piano. And how do you play piano? You play all the time. You play badly a lot, right? So the same thing is true with the language. So if you, you understand that this is a practiced art and you practice it all the time, which means you're going to get it wrong a lot, it's okay. Just keep practicing it. So then the alignment issue becomes around, again, three things. And the three things are this from my standpoint. First of all, you've got to really be clear on the goals and objectives of the company. Like really, let's you know spend some time with yourself and your senior team and make sure you truly have clarity. And by the way, you can't overdo that. You think you're clear. You're never as clear as you think you are. You're just not clear. And so you have to really beat it up. And this gets to that issue of Simon Sinek's idea of the why. Get that really clear. This idea of what are our goals and objectives, our mission, our why? Why do we exist? Why is this important? Get that clear. Play with that language until you can say it really easily in a simple one, two, three. Then second thing you do is you're going to have to become like a politician, this idea of staying on message. And that will be called a 10 by 10 rule. And the 10 by 10 rule means that every day you're going to say that why, that mission and goals, 10 times in 10 different ways to everybody you talk to. So your mission all day long is your, you know, your Gorbachev doing perestroika. Your job is you are going to just constantly talk about this mission and this vision, and you have to do it in 10 different ways. So you can't sound like a parrot. You've got to constantly be telling stories, analogies, numbers. You just got to be throwing those around. Then the third thing is you've got to really then build the structure within the company so it scales that. And the way you do that is your senior team has to know what their job is on scaling the message. And then you make sure that that senior team gets it to their managers. And then you have this idea of cascading, but you do not lean only on cascading. There's a moment where you as a leader, you make that prime message, you say it company-wide, and then that senior team gets it spread out to the managers, and then the managers have to become the carriers. If you do those three things, you get the clarity, you get the 10 by 10 rule, and then you build the structure. You will get alignment. Now, it's not perfect because it is, we're human beings, you know, we're flawed, we're emotional. It's like holding mercury in your palm. It's going to constantly need shifting. But know that if you follow that and you tinker with it, you will get alignment in the company. It will happen. You talked about structure there, Ren. And I wonder, do you then think about how do you translate this down into the kind of operational structure, the performance management, the organizational design, the actual structure of the business and how it operates on a day-to-day basis, does it translate further down into that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go back to Brian Chesky at Airbnb. We launched him on this thing called a listening tour in which what I would have him do is he would go from team to team, really the, the small teams within the company. And every week, he would do these little listening sessions so that over a quarter, over six months, he will have personally met with every single team. Now, why did we do that? Because initially we had to firm it up. We had to make sure people saw him in person, heard him talk about the why and the goals and objectives, and then the senior team saw him in action or the manager saw him in action, and then their job is to repeat that, right? So you have to establish some form on how you establish this in the ranks. But then what you're getting to is things like performance management, OKRs, you roll it in there. Let's make sure, have you been communicating clearly in your one-on-ones? Structure the one-on-ones. So you make sure you talk about the tactics of what we have to get done, right? Talk about their career, make sure that's in there, and then make sure you've spent some time with every employee on the why. 
what are we doing and why is it important? You structure that right in the one-on-ones and the performance management. HR rolls that in everything they roll out to the team. So that in a quarter, you've touched everybody, again, reminding them of why we're doing what we're doing, what our goals and objectives are, and how you fit into that mission. Even if you're the one emptying out the trash cans, you see yourself in mission. And the great companies do this really well so that if you stop the janitor, they'd be able to say to you, I love working for this company because, and they would tell you why. You want to get to that point. Yeah, you're creating a whole army of kind of chief reminding officers. Exactly. I like that. That's right. I touched on wellness, and this is really interesting, especially in the current climate. You know, people are working remotely. We don't know what their personal circumstances are. Some people are responding well to working from home. Some people aren't. If people aren't happy and they're not well, kind of nothing else really matters. How do you encourage founders to think about this and pay attention to it? Well, this is what I was talking about early in the conversation about this idea of you got to go personal. First of all, think about it. I'm a business person. I'm a professional. And I'm having a really horrible time at home. I am just not going to tell you. I'm just not going to tell you. I mean, things can get really bad. I'm going to hide it from you as much as I possibly can because I'm embarrassed. I think I'm a professional. I should be able to manage this. But, you know, think about young couples that have their children in their house. And the kids are right underneath their feet as they're trying to run meetings and, and, you know, do what they're supposed to do. Or worse, you know, a marriage is falling apart and they're now locked in a house and quarantined together. These things are real. It's one of the things that's happening. And it just, you know, like, you know, if you, you talk to psychologists, they'll say the most dangerous place on earth is a personal home, right? If you look at it statistically, more damage is done to human beings inside of their own house than anywhere else on earth, right? So here, all of a sudden in quarantine, we threw everybody else in the most dangerous place on earth and said, stay there together 24 hours a day. What do you expect that happen? So our job as leaders is the personal. You've got to have personal conversations with them. How are you doing? How are the kids? Get to know the names of the kids. How are they doing at school? How are they doing, you know, doing their schoolwork on remote? You know, how's your dog? You know, like you've got to get personal because you've got to uncover where the pain is. And then as a leader, you have to respond to it. And you have to find out what's the most appropriate way to, to respond to it so you don't embarrass them, but you can really help them. So that, you know, HR having their programs where they can help bring resources to a person working at home. I'm a real fan of surprising, delighting people now, like encouraging leaders to deliver little packages to their house. Think about their full family. Don't just think about the employee. What could you surprise and delight the spouse with? What could you surprise and delight the children with? Connect it because they're seeing mom sitting inside of a room in front of a screen all day long and they're confused. They don't know what they're doing. Well, then you as a leader, could you do something analog that would bring joy to that house in that moment in time? Find ways of getting personal and helping them with that, this very real thing. That's why we're saying people are now living their work. Understand what that really means. They're living. Their house now is your office. You have a responsibility. And that's a hard thing for us to get our heads around, but we have to do it. It may cost a little money too. And that's the other problem. So Ren, we're all kind of (laughs) zoomed out, but also zoomed in because we're kind of face to face. And in some ways it can be very effective. What have you seen, observed, picked up, thought about how founders can best adapt to communicating almost solely through video conferencing? Well, first of all, try not to do it solely through video conferencing. I I try to, during the day now, I make sure I take two or three phone calls. Can we just jump on WhatsApp (laughs) so I can walk around the garden and talk? You know, try not to make it where all you're doing is standing in front of a screen because that same fatigue you feel when you binge 
you know, on the weekend on some Netflix series and you wonder why you have a horrible headache at the end of the binging, right? It's because there's something about the screen that just wears you out. So try not to all day long if you can help it. Try to find ways of breaking away from it if you possibly can. But if you are doing it, you got to realize what the impact is on the other person. So for example, you know, this idea of making it where it's an eyeball thing, it's an issue of the eyes. So when you're talking, always look at the camera. Don't look at the screen. Look at the camera because then they perceive that you're looking them in the eye. So just know that. When you're listening, you can look at the screen. So know fundamentally that that's one of the things you have to do on a practical level. Get the screen hyped up. Put it up on top of books or find some way of making it eye level with you. So don't make it you know, where you're looking down your nose at them because it's a really weird experience if I'm looking down on you. I may not say it out loud, but I'm feeling talked down to. It's just a weird emotion. So just know that there's these subtleties to actually the framing of the picture, where you're on the screen. Like push the computer away from you. Don't be too close to it. Like even I, I saw, Paul, the way you're doing it. You've got it almost like you're doing a broadcast. You've learned from television, right? Yeah, I have four cameras that do actually live talks. So I have multiple angles, but you're absolutely right. Looking at the, the lens is so important to have this connection. I'm yeah. hopeless yeah. at that. You've told me before, Ren, and I just don't do it very well. You know, it takes practice. I've often said to people, when you watch great television people and how they can you know, be talking to you like it's personal, right? That's a real hard thing to do. Imagine they're sitting in a studio staring at a big camera with a burly guy behind the camera, and yet they're looking directly at a lens and acting like it's a real human. It takes a lot of work. But all I want you to get your head around is the impact on the other person is so profound that if you don't do it, you lose so much in the conversation. So do it for them. So if you really think about that, your job and my job is to serve the people that we work with, right? Serve them. Look directly at the camera, even though it's painful, even though it's odd, just keep working at it because it's the critical element of this video thing that we're trying to get through. I really love this advice. I will, Ren. I, <laughs> I, better. I, will keep, I will keep trying and I'll remind myself. You know, it reminds me of my first, I did only one corporate job. But it was old fashioned and the CEO, first day met him just for a greeting and his chair was so high, like he was like a king. And that effect of looking down, even though I'm tall, looking down on you. And I fully see the analogy with the screen, the way we're looking at them on a laptop is very potent. Yeah, that is very good advice. Can you just maybe talk us through a few of the principles, you know, when you start an engagement with a a founder, or even at a late stage, when you're working with a Brian Chesky, Mm -hmm. Airbnb, what do you get? I'm going to say some things that they said to me, because I don't really know, but I've had founders say these things to me. One of them is, and this is, this is Brian. Brian used to say this to me all the time. He would say to me, say, Ren, you're the one guy in the room that always asks a fundamental question. And I go, what's a fundamental question? He says, you'd always say, as we get into something complex, you would stop the room and go, guys, can we stop for a second? Can we just ask the question, what's the right thing to do here? And, you know, lawyers are going, ah, blah, 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 blah. that's more complex than that. And then the PR people, ah, you can't do that, blah, 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 blah. HR, blah, blah. You know, everybody has their voice in it. And I would just push on it. I go, I hear you, and I know it's complex, but can we first just, like, in the middle of the table, let's just talk about what is the right thing. Let's just assume we didn't have any of the complexity. What would be the right thing to do? So what I try to do with founders is focus. Go to the right thing first. It doesn't mean you can do that. I'm not naive, but let's start there. Let's look at what right looks like. Like, and, I, and what I mean is often with like firing people or, you know, a partnership or there's something happening in the marketplace with competitors. And let's go to the right thing first. Then let's start wrapping lawyers around it and HR and PR and all that, right? And your regulatory stuff. So that's first. 
The other one was that people have said to me is that I often speak about this idea of being cautious about the idea of confirmation bias and the tyranny of experience or tyranny of education. And what I mean by that is this, that often for guys my age, my experiences actually work against me because my experience is something that happened 10 years ago. It was valid then, but it's not valid today. But I think it is. I've been there. I've done that. We did it before. I've seen this before. It's a tyranny. It can really mess you up. So I'm constantly telling founders, look for tyranny, get rid of it, right? And you have to question it and ask it. It doesn't mean experience isn't great. It's great. It informs you. It's information. But be very careful on overlaying it because generally that experience relates to a different time and place. So one of the things one of the founders said to me that I I used to say a lot, and I I don't say this as much as I used to, but I used to often say to people when they would try to solve a problem, I go, "Can can we have a base rule? And the base rule is this. If it's been done anywhere else, by definition, we don't do it here. So let's start there. So if you're going to solve a problem, a personnel problem, a, a structure problem, any a market problem, let's first start on a basic principle. If somebody else has done it, your competitor or somebody else has done it, by definition, we are not going to consider it right now. And what that would push the team to do is to get very creative about other things, other ways of doing it. Now, do you end up doing it like, of course you do. Like, there's some great solutions and you adopt them. But let's first go to, let's assume they didn't exist and we couldn't lean on them. So I I used to do a lot. I didn't do as much as I used to. And then understand this fundamentally about founders. Founders, they learn from experience. They don't learn preemptively. So as senior people, and I have to coach a lot of senior people working with founders, I go, look, he or she, they've got to walk this path. They're going to make a mistake. And what I want you to do is get them to walk through the mud puddle, but have them walk through the mud puddle quickly. But don't trunk it. Don't hold them away from the mud puddle because then they won't learn. So let them make a mistake, but then just really help them get through that mistake, right? And then I guess finally, it's this idea of trying not to be judgmental. Like, you know, often what happens with senior teams and founders is that the senior people, you know, maybe they've been in the industry for 20 years, they judge. They come in and go, ah, you shouldn't do it that way. And I say, don't do that. Listen to the founder. Really understand where they're coming from because founders are going to have a unique view. Uncover the unique view and then fully consider it. Do not discount it. Don't judge it. Don't push it out of the way. Embrace it and assume there must be something amazing here. Go there first. So those are some of the basic principles that I try to do. And I've spent probably as much of my time with senior teams helping them understand founders as I do with founders developing their voice. Because without a great senior team, the founder is nothing but a stupid guy with a great idea. He's not or she's not going to get anywhere if they don't have amazing implementers around them. So it's a combination of both, I think. Yeah. If the team understand the founder and the founder understands themselves, then you've got something quite exciting there. You've just nailed something for me. I've been trying to articulate the tyranny of experience. That just hit me between the eyes. Because I think wisdom's fine, right? And something that's worked in the past is really important, but it doesn't mean it's going to work like this again. And I think we have to challenge people on, oh, yeah, this is what you should do. Well, how have you made that decision? What has led you to that? Ren, can I ask, we've talked a little bit about what's changed in 2020, but I wonder what's your hope for 21 and 22? and, And what do you think about the challenges? Yeah, we've broken a paradigm. You know, we've broken that model of everybody crowding on a train early morning and, you know, shuffling up stairs and getting into big buildings and that whole rhythmic thing. We have just absolutely blown that thing up. 
And something tells me there's something really exciting here about this idea of remote work or mixed remote, changing the office space, how we interact. You know, I think there's something that we're going to find in 2021. It's going to emerge and into 2022. And we're going to find a new way of working that I hope solves a lot of the problems that the old world created, the level of stress that people were under, the insanity of these hours that we worked showing up into a building and then the hours we wasted going back and forth and and the bad diets, you know, and all the things that went with it. So I, I think blowing up work, is it's opened up a huge opportunity. I do think, like you said earlier, this Zoom idea, there's something personal about it. Now, we haven't quite uncovered what that personal is, except we know it when we see it. We have these odd moments where, because it's one-on-one, I'm in your house, you're in my house. It's going to open up a new opportunity for connection that we haven't had before. And I just don't know what that is yet. So I, I see a lot of hope there. I think that the other aspect of this, you know, you hear people talk about life balance. I've never been a fan of it. I've never had life balance myself because my life work is, I like to work. And so, you know, I've never really understood it. But I think right now, this is forcing us to maybe get that right. Because it's so intruding on our personal lives now, work is, that we're now have to force ourselves to develop a discipline about work and life that we didn't have to do before because we could use commuting as the interlocker, right? And now we don't have that. We're going to be working and living in your house. So now you have to build a discipline. So we might actually figure out life balance now in a way where we actually live our life. We still see our friends. We do what we need to do, but we work. And we'll figure this out so we can get ourselves back to being human beings again. So, you know, and this often happens in nature. Something that seems like it's breaking something ends up creating something even better. I I think we're in that moment. So I'm I'm actually really excited that something is going to emerge because human beings do that. We find that little silver lining and we will. And it'll be really interesting to see how that emerges in 21 to 22, assuming we get through the stupidity of this moment. Because I think it's a really scary moment politically. And what's going to happen to our economies over the next you know, 12 months? That, we can't do much about that except just do our work. But once we get through that, I'm very excited about what this breaking the system is going to do for us. Ren, thank you. That's been a fascinating conversation. It really has. I mean, not only do I hope it's a great episode for the people listening, it, personally, it's been so so helpful for me too it's always good talking to you guys i you know you know how i feel about notion and what you guys do and your team and, and the kind of founders you have so thank you for the privilege of being able to even talk to your folks 